Let's take our Bibles and turn to 1 Kings and chapter 12. We're going to read the first 24 verses of this chapter. 1 Kings and chapter 12, beginning to read at verse 1. Let's hear the inspired and infallible word of God. Previous chapter we are reminded of the death of Solomon and now we come to Rehoboam who was his son. And Rehoboam went to Shechem for all Israel had gone to Shechem to make him king. So it happened when Jeroboam the son of Nebat heard it he was still in Egypt for he had fled from the presence of King Solomon and had been dwelling in Egypt. They sent and called him. Then Jeroboam and the whole assembly of Israel came and spoke to Rehoboam, saying, Your father made our yoke heavy. Now therefore lighten the burdensome service of your father and his heavy yoke which he put on us, and we will serve you. So he said to them, Depart for three days, then come back to me. And the people departed. Then King Rehoboam consulted the elders who stood before his father Solomon while he still lived. And he said, How do you advise me to answer these people? And they spoke to him, saying, If you will be a servant to these people today and serve them and answer them and speak good words to them, then they will be your servants forever. But he rejected the advice which the elders had given him and consulted the young men who had grown up with him, who stood before him. And he said to them, What advice do you give? How should we answer this people who have spoken to me, saying, Listen, the yoke, uh, lighten the yoke which your father put on us. Then the young men who had grown up with him spoke to him, saying, Thus you should speak to this people who have spoken to you, saying, Your father made our yoke heavy, but you make it lighter on us, Thus you shall say to them, My little finger shall be thicker than my father's waist. And now, whereas my father put a heavy yoke on you, I will add to your yoke. My father chastened you with whips, but I will chastise you with scourges. So Jeroboam and all the people came to Rehoboam the third day, as the king had directed, saying, Come back to me the third day. And the king answered the people roughly, and rejecting the advice which the elders had given him. He spoke to them according to the advice of the young men, saying, My father made your yoke heavy, but I will add to your yoke. My father chastised you with whips, but I will chastise you with scourges. So the king did not listen to the people. For the turn of events was from the Lord, that he might fulfill his word which the Lord had spoken by Ahijah the Shilonite to Jeroboam the son of Nebat. Now when all Israel saw that the king did not listen to them, the people answered the king, saying, What share have we in David? We have no inheritance in the son of Jesse. To your tents, O Israel. Now see to your own house, O David. So Israel departed to their tents. But Rehoboam reigned over the children of Israel who dwelt in the cities of Judah. Then King Rehoboam sent Adoram, who was in charge of the revenue. But all Israel stoned him with stones, and he died. Therefore King Rehoboam mounted his chariot in haste to flee to Jerusalem. So Israel had been in rebellion against the house of David to this day. 
Now it came to pass when all Israel heard that Jeroboam had come back, they sent for him and called him to the congregation and made him king over all Israel. There was none who followed the house of David but the tribe of Judah only. And when Rehoboam came to Jerusalem, he assembled all the house of Judah with the tribe of Benjamin, 180,000 chosen men who were warriors to fight against the house of Israel that he might restore the kingdom to Rehoboam, the son of Solomon. But the word of God came to Shemaiah, the man of God, saying, Speak to Rehoboam, the son of Solomon, king of Judah, to all the house of Judah and Benjamin, and to the rest of the people, saying, Thus says the Lord, You shall not go up nor fight against your brethren, the children of Israel. Let every man return to his house, for this thing is from me. Therefore they obeyed the word of the Lord and turned back according to the word of the Lord. Let's pray. We thank you for this particular portion of Holy Scripture and we ask now our God that you would be our teacher, our instructor, that you would show us something more of your glory and your sovereignty and your power as well as the folly of men who do not refer to you. We ask, Lord, that you would make us wise men and women, that by your Spirit you would equip us to live our lives entirely to your glory in this world. Help us then to that end, we pray this night. For Christ's sake. Amen. Amen. If Rehoboam came to Shechem after the death of his father Solomon with the hopes of a smooth passage to kingship over all Israel, his hopes were soon dashed. He came to Shechem and it was not long after that he was confronted, according to verses 2 and 3, with a delegation. Jeroboam the son of Nebat was among that delegation. Remember he was his father's old servant and he had fled from Solomon. Solomon had tried to kill him uh, lest he rebel and he escaped to Egypt. That delegation came with a complaint. It was somewhat exaggerated. Remember these people were looking for excuses. It was not necessarily accurate, but there was an element of truth in it. Basically they said, your father, Solomon, was a hard task master. He made our yoke heavy. A yoke is what you put around the neck of an animal, usually when it's ploughing the land or pulling a cart or something. And you put a yoke around someone, you feel that yoke around your neck. And they said, we felt the weight of Solomon's yoke lighten this burdensome service of your father and his heavy yoke which he put on us. And then they said, we will serve you. What does Rehoboam do? He buys time. He says, come back in three days time and I'll tell you what I will do. If you jump now to the end of the story in verses 19 and 20, you find there that Israel 
is in rebellion and has been in rebellion against the house of David to this day. They come, a delegation with what seems a, a little overworn but a fairly reasonable uh, delegation and a complaint. And before we know where we are, the kingdom is torn in two. And there are no longer ten tribes under Rehoboam. No one followed Rehoboam apart from the tribe of Judah and also Benjamin. Ten tribes followed Jeroboam. Only two followed Rehoboam. The kingdom was torn to shreds. When you read this chapter, it is tempting to see it as a record of human folly and human rebellion, pig-headedness. Certainly it is a good illustration of what may happen if the wisdom of an older generation is neglected and you follow the advice of your peers, young men. Although young in this context, Rehoboam was 41 at this point. Uh, but that was counted as being young in, among the Jews. But there's a much more here than just simply the lesson about not rejecting the wisdom of old men and not following the, wisdom, the, the folly rather of young men. There's a great deal more. Because we must remember that what happens here in this chapter is a divine judgment. That is quite clear from the whole context of the previous chapters. This is the consequence of Solomon's sin. This is the consequence of Solomon introducing idolatrous worship into the very centre of the kingdom, into Jerusalem, the dwelling place of God. So that in the heart of those who are the redeemed people of God, there is idolatry from among the nations because he wanted to please the wives, the foreign wives whom he had loved. And he broke covenant with the Lord. And the Lord said, this kingdom is going to be torn from you. But not in your days, Solomon, but in the days of your son. And you remember the latter part of chapter 11 deals with the a prophet, a hijer, who comes to Jeroboam, the servant of Solomon. And you remember, a hijer takes his cloak and he tears it into twelve pieces and says, you take ten, I'm keeping two. That's what's going to happen. Ten tribes are going to be under your leadership and the other two are going to be left to Solomon and his son Rehoboam. The narrator in this chapter, though, has some interesting comments. The narrator is saying, I will tell you what happened. I'll give you the account of what happened when the delegation came to Rehoboam. I'll tell you what Rehoboam then did and how he responded. And then I'll tell you how Jeroboam responded to Rehoboam's reaction. I'll tell you how the kingdom was torn in two. But I will also tell you why. And I will also explain the significance and that is why in verse 15 we read this. The king did not listen to the people. Why? For, because, 
The turn of events was from the law that he might fulfil his word, which the Lord had spoken by Ahijah the Shilonite to Jeroboam, the son of Nebat. This chapter is not simply about human folly and human rebellion. This is about divine sovereignty and divine judgment. The Lord has done this. These turn of events are from the Lord. If I may put it in plain English, the Lord is in the driving seat in this chapter. He is in control. I want to demonstrate that in three ways as we look at these 24 verses. First of all, in the first 15 verses we see, as we've already indicated from verse 15, we see God's word is fulfilled. The turn of events was from the law that he might, Lord, that he might fulfill his word. Here is the narrator, under the Spirit of God, giving us his explanation. If you really want to understand what is going on, he says, you need two eyes. You need an eye that is focused on what is happening in Shechem. And you listen to what Rehoboam says. And they listen to what Jeroboam says. But he says you also need an eye that's lifted up to heaven and to the courts of heaven. And to the decisions and the plans and purposes of heaven, of God himself. He has a word that is being fulfilled in all these events. The turn of events was from the Lord. He had the express intention of fulfilling his own word that he had spoken through Ahijah to Jeroboam in chapter 11 and verses 30 and 31. Remember, Solomon already knew this. That was why he tried to kill Jeroboam. The Lord had appeared to Solomon in chapter 11 and verse 11 following. The Lord had appeared to Solomon and told him why he was displeased with him and what would happen to his kingdom after him. Now, Rehoboam, as we know, went to Shechem. And he went there because all Israel was going to make him king. But he came away almost empty-handed. The twist, the turn of events was from the Lord. When Rehoboam left Shechem and came back to Jerusalem and he had only two tribes under him, this turn of events was from the Lord. And what was this peculiar turn of events? Well, it's all recorded for us in chapter 12, verses 6 to 14. Rehoboam sends the delegation away and says, come back in three days. And then he goes, first of all, and he consults the old, wiser men who had served under his father, Solomon. And they gave him good, wise counsel. They said, if you will be a servant, verse 7, to these people today and serve them and answer them and speak good words to them, then they'll be your servants forever. But he rejected the advice which the elders had given him. He said in his heart, no, I'm not going to do that. Instead he listens to his peers, young men, albeit 
in their 30s, 40s. And we see their words, and their words are of a different order altogether. Verse 10, Thus you should speak to this people who have spoken to you, saying, Your father made our yoke heavy, but you make it lighter on us. Thus you shall say to them, My little finger shall be thicker than my father's waist. If Solomon chastised you with wits, I'm going to chasten you and chastise you with scourges, with scorpions. I'm going to come down on you with a heavy hand. You're not going to boss me about. That's their advice, basically. What they're saying is, Rehoboam, you've got to sell this to this people. Sell to this delegation. You are a bigger man and a stronger man even than your father Solomon. You've got to impress yourself upon them. You're not going to have them bossing you about. They're saying, we had a hard time under Solomon. You're to say to them, you got off lightly under Solomon. Wait and see when I begin to throw my weight around. We'll add to your yoke. We'll make it harder for you. My father chastised you with whips. I shall use scorpions or scourges. And the phrase in verse 11, my little finger shall be thicker than my father's waist. They didn't use that publicly. But it may well be that those young men are being shrewd and vulgar at that point. You'll notice the word finger is in italics which means it isn't actually in the text. It's been supplied in order to supply some understanding and it may well be. A number of commentators say these are young men being crude and vulgar as a reference to the male genitals. And uh, it's a reference to his father's loins and his waist. And he's saying, you know, he's using this. In all, they're using this in order to show their bravado, in order to be vulgar and to be crude. What we see then is folly, arrogance, intimidation and threats because Rehoboam decides to follow the counsel of these young men. And our Bibles tell us this twist, this turn of events, this folly was from the Lord in order that his word might be fulfilled. The kingdom was going to be torn in two. Rehoboam effectively threw it away by his folly, by his stupidity, by his pig-headedness, by his harshness. But this turn of events was from the Lord. God is the true sovereign Lord over all his creation and over his people Israel. He is in control. It is his authority. His judgments. His words will come to pass. Verse 15 is telling us, you see, no one else seemed interested in knowing God's will with regard to these events. If it had been David in his prime, if it had been Solomon in his prime, what would they have done? Would they not have sought guidance from God? Do I go to Shechem in order to be made king? Find a prophet and seek to know the will of God? There is no attempt on the part of Rehoboam to summon a prophet 
to seek the mind of God. There's no point, no attempt on the part of Rehoboam to pray to the Lord for wisdom. It all seems to be part of the godlessness that seems to have overtaken the heart of Rehoboam and also of Jeroboam. And the narrator stands to one side and says, now wait a moment. This turn of events wasn't just it wasn't just a chance event. It was from the Lord. It was from the Lord that he might fulfil his word. Now, does that mean that God approves of, so- of uh, Rehoboam's folly? Is he the author of Rehoboam's sin and stupidity and harshness? Not at all. Was he then powerless? Was There was a sense in which Rehoboam was the one who was really in control. That wasn't true either. Well then, were Rehoboam and also Jeroboam, were they like robots? And God, as it were, just pressed a button and they jumped in this direction. That isn't the answer at all, either. These men acted freely. They acted consistently with their own nature, their own human nature, their own sin. They made their own choices. Isn't that clear in verse 8? He rejected, Rehoboam rejected the advice of the older generation of men who served under his father Solomon. That was his free choice. God wasn't, as it were, behind his arm, you know, jerking his arm up tighter and tighter and tighter. It was Rehoboam. That was his choice. What do we see? What do we learn from this? That God is so in control over men and creatures and the kingdom of his people in particular. But God is so over control that he is able to use even the wickedness and the folly of men to accomplish his own purposes. Here is a judgment for sin. And God uses even the sin of those he is bringing the judgment on in order to accomplish his purposes. Now does that not display his sovereignty? In a most remarkable way. It's similar to the incident in 2 Samuel chapter 17 where the Lord purposed to defeat the counsel of Ahithophel. When David had to flee because of Absalom, the advice of Hushai was taken and not the advice of Ahithophel. And if the advice of Ahithophel had been taken, David would be a dead man. But no, the advice of Hushai was taken by Absalom. And David got away. Why? Because the Lord purposed to defeat the counsel of Ahithophel. And it is the purpose of the Lord. The turn of events was from the Lord. The word of the Lord was going to be fulfilled and he would use even the folly of Rehoboam to accomplish his purposes. And you say, I'm still not convinced. Alright? Think of what Peter said on the day of Pentecost in Acts chapter 2 to show you the complete an absolute authority of God, even the death of Jesus Christ on the cross 
which was the most wicked act that ever a man or men accomplished. What do we read in Acts 2 verse 23? Of him, of Jesus, being delivered by the determined purpose and foreknowledge of God. There is the sovereignty of God. There is all the promises of God in the Old Testament. All the prophecies. All the things relating to the death of Christ. These were ordained of God. And yet what does it say? You have taken by lawless hands and have crucified and put to death whom God raised up. You see, God even used the wickedness of men who put our Saviour to death on the cross to accomplish his purposes. He is sovereign. And that's what we are seeing here. He will fulfil his word. And when we look at a scripture like this, when we look at a passage like this, doesn't this minister to our sanity? We live in a mad, mad world. We live in a bad world, a fallen world, a sinful world. But this passage tells me, my God, who sits upon the throne of heaven, is in complete and total control. So much so, that he can take even human stupidity and folly and wickedness and overrule it to accomplish his own purposes in this world. There are no accidents in history. God is in total, comprehensive control. And he will use whatever pleases him in order to accomplish his purposes. His authority then is never in question. It is absolute. It is complete. That's why our Bible says, don't put your trust in princes. Don't put your trust in kings. They'll make rash and foolish decisions. They'll make their promises, but they'll die and they will pass away. But remember, the word of the Lord stands forever. And you can rely then entirely upon your God. And not be surprised by what you see in the world. You ought not to be surprised at the foolishness of men. But we ought not to be taken in by our own unbelief. We need two eyes. Two eyes. One that observes what goes on in this world. But the other eye that is fixed forever upon our God in heaven. And he who sits upon that throne, his word stands forever. What he has spoken must come to pass. Promises, judgments, whatever they are, nothing takes him by surprise. He is never left wondering and scratching his head, well, will my plans be fulfilled? This turn of events was from the Lord in order that his word might be fulfilled which he had spoken by a hijack the Shilonite to Jeroboam. That's the first thing then that we see. God's word is fulfilled. The second thing we see is this. In verses 16 to 20 we see God's line cast aside. And by God's line I mean David and his descendants. 
You remember the promises that were made to David in 2 Samuel chapter 7, the Davidic covenant, so-called, where God promises David's throne, David's kingdom will be forever. And yet, what do you find here in chapter 12? Verse 16. What share have we in David? We have no inheritance in the son of Jesse. To your tents, O Israel, now see to your own house, O David. There is the casting aside of the line that God has appointed. Even though God tells Jeroboam, That you are going to be king over these ten tribes. That does not alter the fact that Jeroboam rose up and rebelled against his Lord. And he rebelled and cast off the line that God had appointed. We read in Second Chronicles the parallel passage in verse uh, chapter 13, verses 5 to 7, that he rebelled against his Lord and he was joined by worthless rogues. This was rebellion, open rebellion. How soon God's promises and God's chosen kings are forgotten. David had been selected over against Saul and appointed as a king and Solomon after him and from the line of David and Solomon was going to come the Messiah and here comes Jeroboam and says what share have we in David we're not interested in that anymore now you say well he was provoked by Rehoboam's stupidity well yes he was but verse 16 is clearly rejection and rebellion We read verse 19. Israel has been in rebellion against the house of David to this day. Four times in these verses we read of David. Verse 16. What share have we in David? No inheritance in the sons of Jesse, son of Jesse. Seed your own house, O David. And again verse 19. Been in rebellion against the house of David. And again in verse 20. There was none who followed the house of David, but the tribe of Judah only. Jeroboam and those who followed him, the ten tribes, the majority of the twelve tribes of Israel, at this point willfully reject the house of David as being the ones who are the appointed rulers over the people of God. They are rejecting not only David, they are rejecting God's ruler. They are rejecting God's authority. They will not have the house of David to rule over them. Albeit that they have been provoked by the folly of Rehoboam and his harsh response. And when Rehoboam tries diplomacy, it's a total failure. Adoram, the king's envoy, sent on a peace mission. He was the tax man. He was in charge of the revenue, we read in verse 18. What did they do to him? They stoned him. They killed him. Adding insult to injury. He's murdered and Rehoboam has to flee back to Jerusalem. He has to run for his life. Well, kings don't usually run for their life. That's not a very dignified way to go. You get in a chariot. And you go. 
That's what he did. Rehoboam, verse 18, mounted his chariot in haste to flee to Jerusalem. And then we read in verse 20 that Jeroboam is made king over the ten tribes. Is Jeroboam a descendant of David? No. Not at all. He was a servant in the house of Solomon. Well, you could argue, well, if someone treated me in that kind of way, I might well respond. Surely Jeroboam was justified and Israel was justified in rebelling in that way and breaking away. But at what cost? What's going on here? You've got to see this in the context of the whole pattern of what is happening in 1 Samuel, 2 Samuel, through the book of Kings. They are rejecting God's chosen line. They are rejecting then ultimately the Messiah. They are rejecting the salvation of God. And they are doing it on a large scale. Ten out of the twelve tribes have cast off David and Solomon and Rehoboam, the line of choice. God's choosing. And it gets worse. Very, very quickly. Jeroboam goes and builds golden calves in Bethel and Dan. And the people begin to worship false gods. We'll come to that on a further occasion. There is no excuse whatsoever for rebelling against the Messiah of God and the line that he has appointed, the Messiah to come by. You see, when you look at the Messiah himself, when you look at the Lord Jesus Christ himself, how different he is to Rehoboam. There is no sin in him. There is no harshness in him. There is no rudeness. There's no threats. There's no vulgarity. There's no intimidation. There's no belittling of those who are opposed to him. When the Lord Jesus Christ came into this world, he came in mercy. He came to the poor. He came to the prisoners. He came to the sick. He came to the blind. He came to the widow. He came to the leper. He came to the lame. He showed them kindness. He showed them love. He showed them mercy. He was tender, full of pity, going after them, seeking to save the lost, the guilty, the hopeless, the helpless. He came in love. He came in grace. God the Father sent him into the world and gave him the name Jesus because he would save his people from their sins. He said on more than one occasion, he came to seek and to save that which was lost, that which was far away from God, not deserving. He said on another occasion, he came to lay down his life for his sheep. And when he died on the cross, by his death on the cross, he secured the forgiveness of our sins. And by his perfect life, he, by his righteousness, by his obedience, that obedience which culminated then in his death on the cross, is by that obedience and by that righteousness that, that is put to then our account, that we are accounted righteous in the sight of God. This is the doing of the Messiah. 
Why then would any of you reject God's King? Why would any of you reject the Saviour of sinners? My guess is that every single one of you here tonight have condemned Rehoboam for his foolishness. You have thought to yourself, well, what a stupid man. Whatever made him do that, you condemned him. And in one sense you are right. But what of your own foolishness? Have you rejected Jesus Christ, the Messiah, the descendant of David, the appointed Saviour of sinners? Are you prepared to pass the same judgment upon yourself that you passed on Rehoboam for his folly? I tell you there is no greater act of folly than to reject Jesus Christ the saviour of sinners. If you continue to reject him, what will become of you? You must meet with the judgment of God. It will be far worse than the judgment that fell upon Rehoboam. It will be the judgment of hell. A just condemnation. But lest those of you who do believe on the Lord Jesus Christ should begin to have any proud thoughts, let us remind ourselves that if we belong to Christ, it is entirely of his grace. It's entirely of his power. Who was it who subdued your foolish heart? Who was it who subdued your sins? Who was it who exposed you? in mercy and grace and made you see your need when grace first came to you were you righteous? were you pure? we read right at the very beginning of the service that phrase, those phrases in Titus chapter 3 where Paul says you know we were once foolish he uses that word we were foolish we were disobedient we were deceived we were serving various lusts and pleasures. We were living in malice, envy, hateful, and hating one another. He says, but when the kindness and the love of God toward us appeared, then he says, according to his mercy, he saved us. Not because of righteous things that we had done. But the regenerating power of the Spirit of God sent into our hearts and that grace of justification by which we were accounted righteous and freely forgiven for our sins was it not grace that subdued your heart was it not grace that wrestled with you and conquered you and subdued you and humbled you and made you see your sin and your need of Jesus Christ But there's a third thing here. We've seen that God's will is going to be fulfilled. God's word is going to be fulfilled. We've seen that God's line has been cast aside. But then thirdly, we see that God's grace is being maintained. In verses 21 to 24, Rehoboam has been crushed. 
deeply humiliated. The son of Solomon, whose glory is incomparable, this grandson of David, a man after God's own heart, one of the great heroes of Israel, his kingdom has been torn in two and taken from him. And he's left with a remnant of Judah and Benjamin. And he is smarting. And he reacts. Again, there is no consultation with the prophet. There is no seeking of the face of God for guidance. Even wicked Ahab called upon a prophet. He didn't like what he said and he knew what he was going to say anyway. But at least he called upon a prophet. Rehoboam didn't do any of that. What he does, we are told in verse 21, he goes back to Jerusalem and he collects together a task force of 180,000 men to go to war against Jeroboam and to seize back the ten tribes in the kingdom from Jeroboam. And God says, no. And God in his grace intervenes. Rehoboam is not sort of prophet, so God sends him a prophet. We've not met this prophet before, but in verse 22, the word of God came to Shemaiah, the man of God, saying, Speak to Rehoboam, the son of Solomon, king of Judah, to all the house of Judah and Benjamin, to the rest of the people, saying, Thus says the Lord, You shall not go up, nor fight against your brethren, the children of Israel. Let every man return to his house, for this thing is from me. And the original language is very emphatic. You shall not go up. You shall not fight against your brethren. From me is this thing. That's literally how it is to be translated. God says, no, you, Rehoboam, are not to go and fight against Jeroboam. This thing is from me. This is my will. This is my purpose. I have been working out my word. Verse 24 is saying the same thing effectively as verse 15. This is a chapter about divine sovereignty. What might have been the consequences had Rehoboam gone to war? The last time there was a civil war in Israel one tribe was almost decimated. It's the end of the book of Judges. Benjamin was almost wiped out. What would happen if the tribe of Judah had been wiped out? Judah. Judah. The family of David. What would have happened to the line of David? What would have happened to the coming of the Messiah if Judah had been wiped out in a civil war? God intervenes and says, no, this is from me, Rehoboam. You will not go up and fight. I am putting a stop now to your folly. No more folly, Rehoboam. This is enough. And if you go further than that, the implication is you will destroy yourself and your kingdom utterly. The line of Judah, the nation of the tribe of Judah must be preserved. God's line must remain. And verse 24, and the last part of verse 24, is the first wise thing that Jeroboam, uh, sorry, that Rehoboam has done in this chapter. Therefore they obeyed 
the voice or the word of the Lord and turn back according to the word of the Lord. It was grace that prevailed. We sometimes have a saying, it was common sense. He, he got it, he got the message, and common sense prevailed. This wasn't common sense. This man would have gone to war, but God said no, and grace prevailed in the life of Rehoboam. It's a strange thing, you see, isn't it? But here is the sovereignty of God. He can use the folly of Rehoboam and take the tribes away from him and tear the kingdom in two. And then he can restrain him and cause him to obey in order that he not utterly destroy God's plans and God's purposes. I said that ministers to my sanity to know that God is in control in that kind of way. The heart of the king is in the hands of God. In the hands of God. Here is grace then in the midst of judgment. God will not allow Rehoboam's house to be obliterated. He will not allow Jerusalem to be crushed, his dwelling place, and defiled even further. This is the way in which God works out his plans and his purposes. But what else are we to learn from this passage in conclusion? The word of God is given to instruct us, to correct us, to rebuke us, to train us in righteousness. Well, we've learned about God's authority. We've learned about God's sovereignty and how that ministers to our sanity of mind and heart and maintains it. We've seen also the folly, the folly of rejecting the lying of the Messiah and the Messiah himself and the wonder of the Saviour who comes to sinners. But there are other things to learn, two other things to learn. First of all, we can learn to rely entirely upon God. This story is sad. Here is a kingdom that is torn in two. It's a story of human folly. It's a story of human arrogance. High-handedness, pig-headedness, rebellion. There is a split. Yeah, it's true. Peer group council, dispensing with the elders' council. We, we can see that it's all too human. It's all too familiar to us. It happens in different ways, in different circumstances, every day in the life of this nation. It happens in churches. It's all too common. It's all too human. But as we look at that, we need to remind ourselves and reflect. Solomon, how many wives and concubines did he have? Hundreds. Here is one son, Rehoboam. And yet he is not wise. He does not seek God for wisdom. The wisdom that God gave to his father he does not seek grace from the God who gave grace to his grandfather David. We are reminded that neither grace nor wisdom runs in bloodlines. And it drives home to us our utter and complete dependence upon God himself. We are forced to rely upon God. We must go to him for help 
for strength, for wisdom, for guidance. Let us not make our plans and our reactions and do as Rehoboam did and as Jeroboam did. Not once did it appear that they thought of seeking the will and the mind of God. Not once did they call upon God. And look at the mess that they got themselves into. Let us learn then to rely and to cast ourselves entirely upon our God. He is sovereign. He is in control anyway. But then there is a fourth thing. And I think this is very important. Because you may well say, well that's all very well in theory, but I've made a mess in the past, in my life. I've messed it up by my own stupidity, by my own foolishness. I brought trouble upon myself. And I'm living with some of the consequences of my folly, even to this day. And you can identify with the pig-headedness, with the harsh words. And you say, I've got myself into a hole. I can't undo the consequences. I must live the rest of my life with the consequences of some of the things that I've already decided. They were bad decisions. They were bad choices. Is that the end? Are you now a second best, third best? Not according to two, uh, 1 Kings in chapter 12. After all Rehoboam's folly, and all the judgment of God that fell upon him. After the losses, after the pains, after the humiliation, Rehoboam finds that God is gracious and God restrained him from further folly and Rehoboam finally listened to the word of the Lord and finally listened to the prophet. And he submitted and he obeyed the word of God. He couldn't change things. There was no way he was going to get his kingdom back in its entirety. And you say, well, he got to the end of his tent. He was weary. He'd had enough. He realised, this is stupid. That isn't what verse 24 says. Verse 24 says, they obeyed the word of the Lord and turned back according to the word of the Lord. You say, well, that's a big climb down, isn't it? Wasn't that weakness? No, it wasn't weakness. Wasn't it rather an act of courage and bravery on the part of Rehoboam to obey the word of God, even though he had brought disaster upon himself and pain upon himself? Wasn't it courage? Wasn't it humility? Wasn't it wisdom that led him now to that point where he obeys the word of the Lord? If you have messed up your life, and there is hardly any one of us here tonight who could say that every decision we've made was a right one. And we haven't messed up somewhere in our lives and got ourselves into a hole, and we are still living perhaps with some of the painful consequences of those stupid choices we made. And yet we're here to this day following after God. Why? Because God is gracious. He doesn't cast you off. He doesn't abandon you. 
because of your stupidity and your pig-headedness in the past. True, you live with the consequences of your sin. True, those things come back to you and you're reminded of those things and you regret those things. But, but, you are here to this very day. Grace has been given to you to continue to live your life to his praise and his glory. You see, he's a God who forgives our folly. He forgives our folly. He's a God who puts the pieces together again and gives us grace to go on. Now that doesn't go down too well in our society. People think that they are Mr. and Mrs. Fixit. We're in control. We can handle everything. You know you can't handle everything. Look at what happened when God, as it were, let the reins of Rehoboam and of Jeroboam. Here were men who did not seek after God. And there is the folly. And perhaps you've been there. But God in his grace and mercy has come to you. And God in his grace and mercy will keep you going having forgiven you your stupidity and your foolishness. It's not the end of the world. It's not the end of grace. Grace is sufficient. Your God is a God who does not abandon you, even to your sin. He is kind to you. And you are here this day, and you are seeking to follow after him and to obey him now whatever you have done in the past do not let the past then control how you live now let the word of God control you let the grace of God melt your heart return praise and thanks to him he has so overruled your past follies forgiven you and he has kept you to this day and he will keep you until the day of Jesus Christ. That's his promise. That's our God. That's his sovereignty. That is what this chapter is about. Amen.